Hi, listeners. Welcome to Grief Out Loud. Remember the last time you tried to talk about grief and suddenly everybody left the room? Grief Out Loud is opening up this often avoided conversation because grief is hard enough without having to go through it alone. We bring you a mix of personal stories, tips for supporting children, teens, and yourself, and interviews with professionals in the grief world. Platitude and cliche-free, we promise. Grief Out Loud is hosted by me, Jana DeCristofero, and produced by Dougie Center, the National Grief Center for Children and Families in Portland, Oregon. When I first heard the voice of today's guest, she was telling a love story. Shannon Dingle and her husband Lee were on the Committed podcast, talking about how they fell in love, got married, and were parenting their six children. While at first glance, or first listen really, their story doesn't seem much different than the average person meets person, falls in love, gets married, has children, etc. storyline that we're all really familiar with, for Shannon and Lee, and really for every couple, their story was uniquely theirs. Shannon lived through years of childhood abuse, and by the time she met Lee, she wasn't one to quickly trust anyone, especially men. But Lee, with his disarming personality, steady presence, and unyielding love, became the gravitational force in Shannon's life. This gravitational force allowed her to live in a realm of safety, security, and real connection. I hoped that any time in the future that I heard Shannon's voice or read her words, that the story she first told on the Committed podcast would just be unfurling through the years. But listeners, as I'm sure you can already sense, Shannon wouldn't be on the show if it weren't for grief. In July of 2019, just after securing a contract to write her first book, Shannon, Lee, and the kids were at the beach for vacation. While swimming, a wave hit Lee in just the wrong way, and he died as a result of that accident. So this is still a love story, but it is also now a grief story. The story of how Shannon's been living in the world, raising their six children, navigating a pandemic, and writing a book, all without the gravitational force of her husband, Lee. Shannon's book, Living Brave, Lessons from Hurt, Lighting the Way to Hope, comes out on July 6, 2021. And it's a book that ended up being much different than the one she intended to write. With Lee's death, what it means to be living brave has a whole new dimension. Shannon and I talk about what it was like to have their family's tragedy go so public, and how she and the kids are making their way, with lots of dark humor, honesty, and complete permission to feel and express everything and anything that comes up. Shannon, thank you for making time to talk with me today for Grief Out Loud. Thanks for having me. And I know we're going to talk as we do on the show about grief, but I always like to start with the other side of it, the the love, the meeting, the connecting. And I'm just wondering, like, what drew you to your husband, Lee, and, and what was it like to fall in love with him? I fell in love with him by accident. Um, I tra- first tried to set him up with a friend, and he thought I was creeped out by him because he was definitely interested in me, but I kept wanting Catherine to come with us if we were going anywhere because she saw him first and we were college freshmen. And so college freshman girl rule is that, you know, she had first dips. She was far more aware than I was. And so she just didn't show up. I 
because of a background of being hurt by a lot of men in my life, am not generally comfortable, especially wasn't then at 18, with guys. If I knew that they were expecting anything, even just romantically, with Lee, it felt like we were just hanging out and I was relaxed and then he put his arm around me and I realized it was a date and I was okay with that. <laughs> so largely my absolute cluelessness uh, helped in a great way. And then he kept showing up. I got really sick with mono that first semester that we were dating. He showed up with Gatorade and sandwiches and Hershey kisses so he could still give me kisses and battery operated candles because we were in the dorms and he was a rule follower. I not so much like I would have totally lit candles. Little things like that define so much of who Lee was as a person. He showed up for people and he didn't understand why anybody wouldn't show up for people. It to him was the most natural thing to be 100% present wherever he was and to be responding to whoever was in front of him. And I didn't realize for a long time how rare that is. You know, we're so often distracted by so many different things, by so many things that are coming or that have happened. You know, I can be looking at you and thinking about something that happened two weeks ago and not really fully engaged with you. When he was somewhere, he was all in and all with you. As I was reading your book, Living Brave, and then also thinking back on that podcast convert the podcast episode that you and Lee did for the committed podcast it's like the things I thought about with Lee were just steady and consistent and very disarming like someone that would not spark defensiveness in anyone yeah and he I mean even in family pictures he's the steady one our faces are changing in every frame and he's got the same steady smile we've never had to like ditch a picture because his face was doing something weird because mm -hmm. his reliability um, really defined him, especially for us as a couple, because I am very often spiraling with some new idea or some thing in politics that I'm angry about, or even, you know, he, he would joke that he was nervous when I would say, oh, I have an idea because it could be anything from we should consider adopting again to what if we put the Christmas tree in a different place? Um, because whatever I'm doing, like I have a lot of passion involved and he balanced me out a lot. He was the brakes to my gas. He was the steady to my swirling. He was the calm to my chaos. I tend to judge people a little bit when they talk about how someone completed them or, you know, was a perfect match or any of that. 
but honestly our love story is one of the like super cheesy ones where it looks like it can't be real it looks like it's instagram edited and really um curated and no we just really loved each other and loved spending time together and nothing felt daunting because it was us against the world not just me and then you know thinking about that of uh, that you all had an eye roll inducing relationship that you might have been rolling your eyes if you were looking at someone else in that relationship and that idea of that everything felt I don't know if possible is the word but like doable manageable because it was you and Lee doing it together and now you are faced, you know, he, he died in July of 2019. The pandemic hit the United States in January, February, March of 2020. You're navigating life, a life very changed, raising six kids on your own, multiple animals, as we talked about, and you're doing that without Lee's physical presence. And, and this is a weird question, so it's okay if the answer is like nothing, but I'm just wondering if there's things uh, that you learned or the ways that you were in your relationship with Lee that's helping you navigate all that you're doing in grief now. I, because of my childhood background with severe abuse, needed to heal a lot. And I assumed as a teenager that that would mean on my own that I wasn't going to be in a relationship with anyone because I didn't think that I had what a relationship needs to have in terms of commitment and all the things that I had learned not to have. I had learned not to trust. I had learned not to expect other people to show up. I don't want to treat it like Lee was my mental health support or um, mental health provider, but being married to him and growing up together, essentially, because we were 18 and 19 when we met, that changed me and my expectations of life, of other people, of what the world was in innumerable ways. I've taken on some of his optimism, some of his generosity in assuming other people's intentions to be good. That is not a thing that comes naturally for me, but it was so much a part of him that that is a a part of who I am now. I think any couple ends up taking on different things from um, their partner. And a girl who was totally trying to be a mean girl in college when Lee and I first started dating made a comment once that she liked me better when I was with him. She totally meant it as a slight. But even then, I took it as a compliment on our relationship. I liked me better when I was with him. I was less concerned about what anyone thought. I was less concerned about whether or not I was measuring up to some arbitrary standard in the world because I knew where I stood with him. 
And I knew as I began to share more and more over the past decade about my childhood, about abuse, about just really hard things, that I was sharing from a place of knowing, even if other people didn't understand, I knew he did. Whatever was requiring bravery, he was often a source of that bravery for me. Are there ways in which he continues to be that source of bravery? He continues to be that source of bravery in a kind of twisted way, in that I know in the moments when I feel insufficient and when I feel like I'm just not enough or I'm too much, you know, or all of the other things that are basically imposter syndrome. I know it's possible to move forward. I know it's possible to not just get stuck in that cycle. I know that it's possible to take some deep breaths and have support from others and ask for help when needed. And all of the things that I did with him that I'm having to figure things out in a very different way now. There have been so many times when I have said to a friend or to my therapist that I just, I wish that he were here to hold me through this, whatever the this might be. In being changed by him and being loved by him and in loving him in return, I am able to do for myself things that I couldn't do before I knew him, that I couldn't, I didn't have faith in myself. I didn't believe that my words could matter. I, he was my biggest champion with this book. Uh, I signed the contract for it three months before he died. He was so excited for me and he knew this was kind of like, this was goals and, and it all, came together. And then he was promoted and was the head of his company, you know, was president of his engineering firm. And everything for once was, we were getting to the point where things were easy, not so hard. And then he died. And in that, when when Lee died, the story went global. Like there were news stories about it. Like it was so public. And I was just wondering, you know, a lot of times I talk with people about the things that people say to them when they're grieving that don't feel great. But I was wondering, like, because Lee's death was such a like, tragic accident, is there a question or questions that people ask you about his death and how he died that just really don't land well? Because people have seen our story, all over. I have folks who have contacted me from Australia and Norway and Thailand and a lot more places who heard my story on the news wherever they were because it was this freak accident at the beach. We are an attractive family and so things took off and there really wasn't a whole lot happening in the news that particular week. For me, it's the assumption that I want to talk about it. The assumption that I want to talk about the details 
what, what I share about what happened on the beach is very edited, is very intentional. I know what I'm comfortable with putting out there. And I know that there are some things that are not going to be for public consumption. The number of people who think that they can ask certain things that even my best friends would couch with, you don't have to answer this, but, and strangers feel like that we were entertainment almost, and they wouldn't word it that way, but it was this sort of trauma porn of everybody was glued to the news and subsequent articles about donating organs and articles about who we were and who he was and all of these different things that I think it was easy for people to lose the human aspect of it, that we weren't some news show. We were a family deeply grieving, a family who had to duck news crews pretty regularly. We, we had him buried in the morning of the day of his funeral because we didn't want for news crews to follow us from the church to the burial site. And we knew that was most likely what was going to happen if we went from the church to bury him. And so did things in a different order. And so the fact that my kids couldn't play in the front yard because news crews were showing up, that I unplugged my phone when I heard one of my older kids say no comment and hang up when Inside Edition called it made me realize like my kids right now are grieving so hard and yet they've learned to say no comment. You know, like they've learned these things that I don't want them to have to know. Um, I ended up having to designate a dear friend of mine who had the skills for this to be our media contact because there were all sorts of people reaching out to me and I, knew that they were going to run with the story one way or another. So I didn't want them to be interviewing like some random person Lee said hi to once and who acted like we were their best friends. You know, I, I, I wanted the coverage, especially knowing how things live forever online nowadays. I knew my kids would grow up and consume some of that media coverage that happened at the time of Lee's death and learn about different things that way. And I wanted it to be a story that would feel honoring to them of both his memory and their experiences. And with your children, you and Lee have six kids. And in the book, you mentioned many times your book, Living Brave, that one of your first thoughts when Lee died was, I don't want to have to tell my kids this, and I don't know how I'm going to. And I was just wondering, you know, as a parent, how did you talk with them about it? How did you tell them the news? And what kinds of questions did they have? There's a couple of parts of that that I can give some answers to. But for the most part, 
I don't answer those questions about how the kids ha are faring, how the kids responded to different things, how I told the kids, because while that is definitely a part of my story, it is more of their story than mine to tell. You know, as they grow up and choose to tell or not tell that story as as they desire, I will fully support whatever that looks like. I know my dread at the hospital of knowing some of my kids uh, who joined our family by adoption have experienced the death of a parent before. I realized I had to be intentional in our conversation about making sure that they knew that while some kids ended up in orphanages in their countries of origin because a father died and a mother couldn't take care of the family, that wasn't what was happening here. And one of the other things that I had on my mind in planning how that conversation would go was making sure that they knew that the full range of emotions was absolutely fine. You know, that if they left tomorrow, that wasn't somehow betraying the grief they have for Lee dying. When, if they um, got mad about it, or if they were super sad, and if they cried, or if they didn't cry, any of that, they had permission to feel what they feel. The beauty in me being so focused on them is that the things that I was thinking about that they needed were the same things that I needed to be hearing too. One thing that was and is invaluable to us is that we already had some mental health professionals in our lives because growing up is hard and because there's some trauma and because, you know, there's a lot of different reasons. But it meant that I could talk through with the kids' psychologist how I was going to tell them and get her thoughts on things. And so it didn't feel quite as alone. And I still do that, especially in those moments where I'm like, oh my gosh, I'm not supposed to be making this decision by myself. Lee and I would have made this decision together. Um, I will text Dana and say, hey, can we talk? Because if it's something that is significant, I like to have that other person who is with me and committed to my kids. And sometimes I'm an external processor, so I don't even necessarily need her to say anything. I just have to have somebody to talk at. <laughs> um, that has been huge and I don't know how we would have fared especially early on if we didn't already have people in place who knew our kids all of the kids are in therapy now they weren't all in therapy then but the psychologist who works with them knew the other kids you know and so it it wasn't starting fresh I really appreciate what you were saying earlier of how you know I think about the experience that your family is going through, how public it became, and how often that happens for families when someone dies in an accident or some other thing that gets deemed, quote unquote, newsworthy. And I think about story and narrative and grief and how, you know, we grieve as individuals, we grieve as family, then sometimes we're grieving publicly. And just really appreciating the 
intention you put behind whose story is it and whose story is it to tell? Because a lot of tension and conflict can happen in a family system when someone dies and it's like, who's grieving this way and who's grieving that way and who's telling the story and who has control over whose story is being told. So just really appreciating that intention that you're bringing to your kids. Another part in your book that really stood out to me is, you know, we talk a lot about the different metaphors for grief. One of the most common ones is grief comes in waves. You know, you hear it and read it all over the place. And then a wave is how Lee died. You know, so the other metaphor you talked about in your book is like when Lee died, it felt like gravity went away, like the force that was holding you, you know, to the planet. And just wondering, like, how how are you navigating those different metaphors of grief coming in waves? And, and do you have a new one or a different one? Or are you still relating to that gravity one that you identified? The gravity metaphor still totally works for me, that he was such a grounding force in my life that it feels disorienting. Even later today is promotion for eighth graders. My two oldest are heading to to high school. And so they are wrapping up middle school and the whole, you know, ceremony of whatever it looks like. I'm not 100% clear on the details, but I know when I have to be where. <laughs> um, <laughs> but that is something that feels disorienting because he's not here to be part of it. And so, and it's an emotional thing. And June is an emotional month for me anyway, especially since Lee died because my birthday and our anniversary and Father's Day all fall in June. I'm already at the point where emotions are very, very close to the surface that worked without me having to do much work before Lee died because he grounded me. Now I've realized how much I relied on that. So I'm intentional about what I need to do to ground myself, whether it be breathing, whether it be kind of stepping away for a moment and kind of in gathering myself. It has been nice actually to have masks because I don't have to like arrange my face for anyone. <laughs> um, and I'm thankful for that today. The wave analogies keep coming like waves. Um, they, it is something that is used so often. Someone on Twitter recently used a wave analogy in talking about grief in a reply to me. And several of my Twitter followers like jumped on her of like, that. that's probably not the best metaphor. And I had to call some people off and be like, dude, it's a common metaphor. And now we're two years remo removed or nearly two years removed from Lee's death. So I have people who follow me who don't really know how Lee died. So they know something happened, piecing things together I don't think anybody on their own would get to a guess that a massive wave slammed him into the sand and broke his neck. That is not a story or a typical narrative, even if you know that something happened at the beach. So now I generally am not too bothered by wave analogies. I notice them every single time. There's not a single time that a wave analogy is used or a drowning analogy is used without me connecting that to our story. 
and moving past that. So it's always a bit of a speed bump for me. But at this point, especially if it's somebody who does know our family well, I know that they're not thinking about it in those terms. And so there have been sometimes there was a teacher who has had all of my children and she started to use the wave analogy in saying something to me um, and in sharing her own experience of grief because she also had lost someone very, very close to her. And I just started laughing and it took her a while to realize why I was laughing. Uh, and then she was embarrassed and apologizing. And I was like, no, I just, I, I couldn't, I, I'm not as good at hiding or tucking away emotions as I used to be. And so if I find something funny, I'm not gonna like just have a little smirk and that's gonna be the only thing that shows. No, I, I was cracking up to the point that I couldn't explain at first. And that was why she ended up realizing things before I said anything, because I was laughing too hard to explain that it was just absurd to me that, you know, this analogy is common and it fits. And this is a person who knows me well and knows very well what happened. And because this is the sort of analogy that we use so often, the connection between it didn't happen in, in her head until I started laughing. If it's someone who I'm super close with and I need for them to be able to get it right um, and not be, not throw kind of a speed bump into things if it's not necessary, I'll say something. But otherwise, wave analogies are just like seeing beach pictures every summer or seeing wedding anniversary photos you know, and seeing people walking together and holding hands. Uh, there are a million different things that remind me of what we had or what we don't have. While I'm grateful when our culture is cognizant of triggers, I also have to recognize that so many of us have triggers that are not things that anybody would put a trigger warning on because they're just normal things but for us they trigger hard memories or become this speed bump or even just straight up wall that stops us and I don't want us to stop using certain analogies because we are so almost allergic to talking about grief as it is. And that's one of the reasons that analogies work really well, because we, even when we're talking about grief, we have to be talking about something else instead of grief to be talking about grief. You know, that that's, that's the way that we work around things in our communities, in um, our conversations. If we got rid of all of the analogies that could be hurtful, I don't know that we would talk about grief and death at all. It would take a, a huge shift in how we are as a culture to talk directly. I mean, even 
I, I throw people off because I talk about my dead husband. I don't say my late husband. I don't generally say that I lost my husband or any of those other words that work great for some people. And if they work for you, like I'm all for that. But for me, it feels like minimizing what happened. My kids are comfortable making various jokes and things. We have lots of dark gallow humor. That's one of the things that I actually warn adults who are new to us about when they're like, is there anything that I need to know? And I'm like, well, the kids are going to just like very bluntly talk about their dad being dead and they might make jokes about it and people don't know what to do with that. One example that I can share is that one of the kids wanted some dessert that we all had while she wasn't home. And she said, well, I really wanted that. And another of our kids said, well, I wanted a dad. So, and that, <laughs> that's how we are. And that throws people off because usually, you know, joking about your dead dad isn't a thing that people expect. My kids were asked why they were smiling or how was it that they were smiling in the early weeks and months following Lee's death because they didn't understand and I don't I think many of us don't understand until we experience it that grief is always existing it's always a part of our lives his absence can be very very loud while at the same time, there is something really exciting happening or really joyful happening or real, something that we're thankful for or something that we're scrambling to figure out or, you know, that there is so much both and since we don't know and aren't comfortable with grief in our culture, we think that grief can't coexist with other things. And it always does. So Shannon, in reading your book, Living Brave, you write a lot about all the ways of being brave uh, in terms of navigating and surviving childhood abuse, finding your voice, having a split with a close religious community, so many different ways. And now you're faced with living brave in grief. And I'm wondering, you know, in this moment today, how how are you living brave in your grief? I think... The biggest way I'm living brave in my grief now is getting out of bed and doing the next thing. I never want to seem like one of those authors who arrived and that's how I wrote this book. I return to things that I've written. I return to um, concepts that in a healthy, less overwhelmed version of me you know, I was able to write and I still stand by, but I forget. June is a hard month for me. July is when the anniversary of his death will be coming and the book's releasing. Holding a lot of things loosely, allowing myself to cancel if today didn't end up working for me emotionally, for us to talk, just letting myself feel all of the feelings and do the next thing, which may be admitting that I can't do the next thing and seeking help is what living brave looks like for me now. 
I'm less shaken on a regular basis as I was early on, but it's still very moment to moment. And I think it may always be, which I am both accepting and hating a lot of the time. One, one of my concerns, um, and I've already seen it in some reviews, is that people will take this book as being like some super hopeful thing. And there's hope in the doing the next thing. But I'm not about tidy bows and pretending that there is a place at which to arrive. Grief and bravery and living is messy. And so living brave through grief is going to be chaos a lot of the time. And so it's, there more than we would like to admit, living brave is surviving whatever the chaos is. I always go back to thinking about grief and dishes. You know, it's like sometimes when grief occurs, we think if we just wash all the dishes as fast as we can and as well as we can and dry them perfectly, tomorrow there'll be no more dishes. There's always more dishes tomorrow to be done and or not done, depending mm-hmm. on where we are in that moment. Remind me again, Shannon, what is the, the publishing date? Like when can listeners get a hold of your book? July 6th. And it will be available, uh, Living Brave will be available in ebook format, in audiobook, written form on that date. Some people, especially because it's a memoir, have asked if I recorded it. I chose not to because of how hard that would be emotionally. That was a living brave sort of decision for me to make. But I am absolutely psyched about the person who did record it. I got to pick her out. um, And my kids think it's really, really awesome that she also voices a Transformer in Transformers Cyberverse. (laughs) So I don't know that adults are going to be as psyched about that, but it gives me cred. And then, okay, so July 6th, the book is coming out, listeners, and get it wherever you get your books. And then for folks who want to connect with you, because you have a very strong presence on social media, what are the ways that people can find you there? Shannon Dingle is a unique enough name that that is basically my handle everywhere. So on Twitter, where I'm probably the most active, but least edited. So if you're okay with... uh, with things rather unfiltered. (laughs) I'm at Shannon Dingle there. If you like things a little more filtered, I am at Shannon Dingle on Instagram. And um, my professional page on Facebook, search for Shannon Dingle. I can't remember exactly what it is. Okay. But everything (laughs) on my website, shannondingle.com, to find all sorts of different ways you can order the book. If you go to shannondingle.com slash book, you'll have it all there. Well, thank you again for all that information. And listeners, as always, it'll be in the show notes in case you didn't get a chance to scribble all of that down. Shannon, thank you again for for your book, for coming on Grief Out Loud, for talking with me, um, for just being who exactly who you are in your grief. I just really appreciated our time together today. Yeah, I'm so glad to be able to do it. 
And listeners out there, I say this each and every time, but thank you for being part of our community, for making the show mean what it does. If you have ideas for topics or you just want to share with me what the show is meant to you, you can email me at griefoutloud at dougie.org. And our website, dougy.org, is also where you can find all of our resources and all of our past episodes. So thanks again for listening, and we hope you'll join us again next time. Bye.